Welcome to the Anti-Woke Podcast. Go Trump! I mean Biden. I mean screw them all. Links in the description for Twitter and YouTube. Please subscribe on YouTube. You don't have to watch the videos. Now let's joke around with some stuff. The race-swapped male fairy godmother from Cinderella lost his house because of the actor's strike. Ha ha. Whoops, don't think that. What is the difference between the U.S. women's national soccer team and the Swedish bikini team? I'm just asking for a friend. How many daughters of Nigerian doctors do you have to let into Harvard to make up for slavery? Is China building a whole bunch of solar panel installations because they're such nice guys? And do we need to bomb those solar panels? I went to the doctor for depression, so I'm disabled. Now give me some of that sweet diversity money. Now on to the rest of the show. A Spotify user left a comment on my podcast this week. Matt said, fun and entertaining. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Matt. And I didn't do a Spotify poll last week, but I'm going to do one this week. And it's going to be something like, would you rather have Trump and Biden sent to prison right now? Or would you rather have Trump and Biden as the 2024 presidential nominees? The big crime story on NBC Nightly News this week is the Alabama brawl. And what happened was, is there was a fight on some docks, I think in Mobile, Alabama, where some white people were parked at a dock and some, I think, city ship came by and it was a city dock and they said, you got to move because our city ship needs to park there. And so um, maybe the assistant captain, I don't know, anyways, one of the high up, high up, but not the captain of the city ship, he got off and he went, walked down the dock to tell the white people to get the fuck out of there. And anyways, he was a black guy and the white people attacked him. And it was multiple whites on one black guy. And then black people from around the area came in and basically whooped ass on the white people. One black guy grabbed a chair and he was doing it like in the old world wrestling entertainment videos. And he's I don't know, there was like a white lady on the gra- sitting on the ground. He just bonked her over the head. And as far as I can tell, the white people are in the wrong. The white people started it. I mean, when the, just the, the people who were not involved, black people, came in and just started beating the shit out of women and whatnot. Well, you know, I guess if you're a woman, why don't you hang out with better men who don't start fights? And so basically, this became a big national news story because first off, there's video. That's always super important. And second off, a group of white people, kind of unprovoked, just attacked a black person. And I can't remember the last time there was a video like that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Ahmaud Arbery or something, three years ago. Anyways, woke people were pretty pleased with themselves. Um, I guess the anti-woke take is, you know, you, you can go on Twitter and find a group of black people violently attacking usually a single white person. Um, you know, there's a, vid- there's a video of that every single week. You know, there, there could be 52 of those videos put on national news every year. And so NBC Nightly News is trying to give a false impression that racist America has 
white people going around attacking blacks all the time. But we did have it one time. Can you make up for American slavery by letting the children of Nigerian doctors into Harvard with low test scores? Well, you can decide for yourself, but we've been trying something kind of like that for about 60 years, and it doesn't seem to be working. Well, Tuesday's episode of Slate's Hear Me Out was talking about affirmative action and how it maybe helps lower class, middle class, and upper class black people differently. And the podcast is hosted by a bougie black lady, and then the guest was a black male journalist who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. I think foster care, all sorts of stuff. I think both of them actually mentioned that they have a white parent, which in America, basically every single African American is part white, and I think on average they're 25% white. So in fact, these these two individuals are probably 63% white. But, uh, you know, we had the one-drop rule in the back when it meant something bad, so it's okay to have the one-drop rule now today when it means good things. But the lady is describing her family, and apparently after they were freed from slavery, people in her family, the, the black people in her family, have been going to college since, I think she said like 1860 or something, in Atlanta. I guess it can't be 1860. must have been maybe the, maybe the late 1860s. I believe something changed in about 1865. But she said her family is bougie and she, it's always gone to college. And he said something that I didn't know, but bougie is a black term. It's, you know, it's uh, Ebonics, black scent, African-American vernacular. There we go. It's African-American vernacular for bourgeoisie, which I think that goes along with the proletariat. Is the proletariat poor people and the bourgeoisie is the rich people? It's something like that. And he says that poor blacks came up with the term bougie because they didn't get along with rich blacks. Like, you know, rich, whatever. Some people don't get along and rich blacks look down on the poor blacks and the poor blacks didn't like being looked down upon. And they talk about affirmative action and he mentions that the recent incoming class at Harvard had 154 black people in it seven of whom were poor. So basically, poor, you know, affirmative action is not helping poor black people. I mean, some of those people got, could have got in either way, but probably half or more than half of them got in from affirmative action. And he mentions that the top 200 universities let in 10,000 people each year under affirmative action. That includes blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, I mean, I don't know, trans, who knows what. But I never heard the number. There you go. The underqualified people getting into colleges each year is 10,000. And they get into this discussion of racial solidarity and class solidarity. And this woman thinks that she has perfect racial solidarity, that she stands with all black people and that all black people should stand together. And I don't think he agrees that she actually does have total racial solidarity. He goes for racial and class solidarity. So basically, black and poor. You might say the intersection of those things. And he kind of thinks that, you know, middle and upper class blacks are 
using the poor living conditions of poor blacks so that they can get free shit. And they don't actually care what happens to the, you know, poor blacks. Or maybe they care, but they're not going to do anything about it. They're not going to take the free shit and give it to poor blacks to start with. And so when you tell some woke lady that when she's out there supporting affirmative action and thinking she's a good person, that she's not really on the side of poor blacks and that she may be kind of stealing their valor, she finds that a little upsetting. I mean, normally she would just call everyone a racist and be like, problem solved. But this situation is a little bit trickier. I mean, she does call everyone a racist anyways, but that doesn't quite solve the problem. It's just, you know, the knee-jerk reaction that doesn't always work. But steal a man opposing viewpoints every chance he gets. And so he said something else that was interesting was that whites get to be broken down by class. Like poor whites can say, hey, I'm a poor white and I want stuff, I want free shit for poor whites. And I guess middle class whites, they can say, hey, I'm a middle class white and I want some free shit for middle class whites, etc. And so the steel man is, is that, I think that's kind of true. And, you know, it's almost a form of white privilege. The thing that doesn't exist, um, there is a little bit, there's, there's a little bit of white privilege that exists right there. I just, I have to, I have to admit, I guess. Like, poor blacks have to take it in the shorts to help out the rich blacks, but poor whites can go their own way and possibly vote for Trump. In fact, yeah, I mean, black people only have one party they can vote for, the Democrat Party, that doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to be fixing their problems, but they all just got to vote for them. But I'm going to play a clip of them talking. Um, I believe it's four minutes long, so if you don't want to listen to it, skip ahead four minutes. Trend. And, and here's why, like, part of me is just, like, so upset and, no, we just need to put affirmative action back. And it's because affirmative action was never meant to be the answer, right? Affirmative action was dearly fought for, not just by Martin Luther King, but by generations of civil rights activists, our ancestors, our grandmothers and great-grandmothers. Um, and it was supposed to be a first step as we worked toward solving systemic problems that are still with us. Um, and it was sort of be, it was supposed to be a tent pole that would give us the space to work within <laughs> to fix some of these other problems, to, to make it so that there weren't these schools in poor neighborhoods that didn't have music programs and higher math, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and to, to do all these other things. Um, but that, none of those things happened that we weren't supposed to have still be working with neighborhoods where redlining was happening, where insurance was three and four times higher for black and brown folks than they were for white folks. And so you couldn't afford to fix your roof when a hurricane came through. Um, all of these tent pole achievements were supposed to hold up the structure to give us the space to fix those things. But what's happening now, it feels like to me, is that we're pulling down the tent poles collapsing everything and we're losing the space without ever having solved anything that was going on inside. And so it feels as though we are being dragged back and losing even that tiny bit of progress that we made without fixing any of the things that we are supposed to have fixed. And we're being dragged back by the very, not the exact same people, but 
nearly the same people ideologically who fought that progress in the 1860s, in the 1920s, in the 1950s, in the 1960s. I mean, that's the, the part of me that disagrees with you. That's the part of me speaking to you now. It's that part, which is like, why are we losing even this? I can't borrow from the benefits that the black middle or the black upper class has. And I have no issue with the black middle and the black upper class lamenting what's been taken from them um, because something has been taken from them. And like you said at the beginning, we don't know what's coming next. It may get worse for them. But I don't think I can convince people to come up with concrete policies that target the black poor unless I can acknowledge the degree to which we weren't targeted previously and that we weren't part of this we that got to have these benefits. And, um, you know, I'm in a line with... Uh, you know, Professor William Julius Wilson, who wrote in 1978, The Declining Significance of Race, and he was maybe uh, the first black professor and someone who also came from poverty, to note that that initial push for black progress right after the civil rights era had been mostly absorbed by the black middle and the black upper class. And since then, everyone who's attempted to diagnose how the benefits of racial progress have been distributed has repeated that the black poor aren't getting it. So I have no issue saying that this is a loss for the black middle and the black upper class. But if I can't say that at the same time as I admit that the black poor didn't get their share, it didn't help us, we're not a part of this we, and I can't contact some you know wealthy black people out there when I need to pay my rent. So we can say we in the collective of the race, and I understand the political uh, motivations behind it, but on the ground, it just, I don't know that it uh, feels helpful to me. So I don't know anything about that lady, but it's not too crazy to think that she has kids, and she was thinking, my kids are going to Harvard. But now, affirmative action has been possibly ended, and she's going, without those extra 350 SAT points tacked on, my kid is going to have to go to the University of Georgia. Don't people know what happened to George Floyd? My kid deserves to go to Harvard. And he's like, you and your kid got nothing to do with George Floyd. And this thing where you guilt trip white people into letting your kid into Harvard, while a million poor kids, poor black kids, suck hind teat, well, that ain't right. I mean, I think they can both agree that they want to take from the whites and give to some blacks, but they just want to give to the kind of black that they are. I mean, makes sense to me. I mean, I want free shit for 50-year-old white men with no family and no job. And if I could somehow use George Floyd to make that happen, I would. The U.S. women's national team lost in World Cup soccer. They lost to Sweden, which... Every time I hear Sweden, it makes me think of Swedish bikini team. And I feel like the Swedish bikini team idea comes from the 80s when I was a kid, but I looked it up and apparently it comes from a Milwaukee's Best beer commercial thing in 1991. And Wikipedia said it was blonde women with large breasts. And it was. I think maybe a commercial would be something like, I don't know, some men are in a bus going somewhere and their bus breaks down on the side of the road and maybe the Swedish bikini team shows up and gives them beer or something and everyone's real happy. 
I mean, it wasn't like a whole sports league thing where Sweden was going against the Nigerian bikini team and some bikini sport. But it made me look up breast size by country, which, whatever. Someone has compiled a list. And Northern European, that's, there, there you go, largest breast. I think Norway, Luxembourg, I think Sweden might have been in there. And the list I saw was nice enough to correlate it with low BMI. So it wasn't, it wasn't what country is the fattest. It was large breasts to go with low body mass index. Well, obviously the Swedish bikini team commercial is much more interesting than the national women's soccer team. But U.S. women's soccer was crushing everybody. It was not even close. I think up until 2019. And then it's kind of how, like how Disney got woke at the same time the interest rates went up. You know, it's just bad timing. But about the time that the women's soccer team stopped singing the anthem and sometimes taking a knee and, I don't know, you know, wearing short haircuts because they're lesbians, um, that's the same time they stopped winning. They, uh, they lost um, Olympics, and now they've lost the World Cup since their heyday. And Megan Rapino, she's the number one lesbian who takes the knee and colors her hair. She missed a penalty kick at the end, so I don't know. She's kind of the, the villain or the whatever. People might blame her for the loss. And she's the one who's the most famous for being woke. And I guess Trump went online and said he was glad they lost. And the Fox Sports announcers were kind of criticizing them for not taking winning seriously. They didn't say it, but kind of implying that, you know, fighting for social justice is what these players take seriously, not winning. And that's why they lost. And there was a time after George Floyd where the wokest players, the most, well, pretty much the lesbians, um, they were getting put in ad campaigns, I think making a lot of money from Nike. But I don't think that little girls are going to go buy a bunch of Nike gear because a butch lesbian tells them that America's racist. Like, I haven't heard if Nike sold a lot of gear from Colin Kaepernick. He was the football player who started all the taking a knee thing and calling America racist. I don't know I don't know if they sold a lot of gear, but they ran his campaign. They might still be doing it. That thing ran for years. But I think the, the women's soccer version, it just I mean, first off it's a white girl. And then second off, they've lost the two big things that happen and they, those things only come around every four years. So it'll be a while for anyone to put women's soccer on the map again and I don't know. I think we can close the book on women's soccer being super woke and getting in to the media. I mean, I'm sure the white girls in K-12 and beyond um, will still all be the wokest of the woke, but I think the rest of us can go back to ignoring them as long as we don't have to drive them from match to match. The Attorney General appointed a special investigator to keep investigating Hunter Biden. Actually, I didn't do it on purpose, but he's going to keep investigating him. That's not how it's supposed to be. He should be starting to investigate him. And now I can't remember if it's special counsel or special investigator. Anyways, the Special Olympics person. There are rules about them, and one of the rules is that they have to come from outside the government. And so the Attorney General appointed the guy who's been 
investigating Hunter Biden since 2019, thereby breaking that rule. I mean, you know, who enforces that rule on the Attorney General? Well, the Attorney General, so I think he's going to let himself get away with it. The only check and balance there would be, does Biden fire him for doing it? But anyway, so the guy who's been, in, who's been investigating Hunter Biden for years, you know, just the right number of years, so the statute of limitations lets Hunter Biden off the hook for all the stuff that he's done, and then tried to give him a sweetheart deal that lets, again, lets Hunter Biden off the hook for all the stuff after that that he has done. Well, anyways, he's special now, and he gets to keep doing that. You know, is, is, is he going to change and not let Hunter off the hook after he's done years of letting him off the hook? Uh, I mean, we will see. I mean, basically, the House Republicans are investigating Hunter, and they keep coming up with, like, bombshell things. The one this week was that Hunter Biden got $20 million over a period of years from Ukraine and Chinese and other country corporations. $20 million. And the money was sent out to everyone, I'm going to exaggerate here, to everyone in the, in the whole Biden family, except for Joe. And I guess an email that Hunter Biden sent to, I believe his sister, don't quote me on that, he was saying, quit, quit complaining, I've been having to pay for everything in the entire family for decades. Reminds me of, there's some application that Hunter said, I can't remember what, maybe he was paying maybe $10,000 a month to rent Joe Biden's house. I mean, Joe Biden was living there. It was, it was Joe Biden living in his house. And Hunter Biden said he was paying 10 grand a month for that. We never got to the bottom of that. I mean, you know, we haven't gotten really to the bottom of anything. There's just these monumental questions. And I think Joe Biden's line, it used to be that he never talked about any business with his son a single time. And then they had to, then it was like, oh, here's, a, here's, a, here's proof of you talking a bunch of times. And it's like, okay, okay. But we were not in business together. And I think that change happened maybe two or three weeks ago. And then I think this week it changed to Joe Biden did not directly benefit from Hunter Biden's business, which is like, oh, so you're saying he indirectly benefited. And the media is ignoring it. Basically, none of this stuff is real until the New York Times and the Washington Post start writing about it. It seems like maybe, boy, you'd think that time, I mean, if it wasn't for Trump, if any other situation almost in the history of America, they'd be investigating the hell out of this, but they're still not doing it yet. They know that any investigating of this stuff is going to make Trump president. So, I mean, they're, they're between a rock and a hard place. If you have any integrity at all, you're going to get Trump reelected. That's a pickle. And so last week we learned that Joe Biden was on phone calls with like Ukrainian oligarchs 20 times and met with them in person two times. And so the Department of Justice came out with an indictment against Trump, and that just drowned, you know, the news was like, whatever. It was 97% about Trump and his indictment. It washed out any of the Hunter Biden stuff. They can only do so many indictments against Trump. So this week they didn't have an indictment to just flood the airwaves. And so this special counsel thing, they dropped it, <laughs> classic, they dropped it at the end of Friday because... Then there'll be two days before the nightly news programs have to talk about it. So, you know, that's, that's when you drop information you want to memory hole and have it go away. Oh, but also this week, yeah, so the, the, big, the big news about Hunter was that he got $20 million. Unless I already said that. Anyways, 
This week, he got $20 million. Can't indict Trump. Everyone's calling for a special counsel. It's obviously something that should be done because how can the Biden DOJ investigate himself or, well, his son? I mean, I would say, it, I mean, this, I don't care about Hunter Biden. You can, whatever, you can do nothing but nice things to Hunter Biden. For every crime that he commits, you can do something nice for him, for all I care. I just want Joe Biden taken down. But so put it in a, basically a fake special counsel in charge of the thing, one that you know will slow walk it and whatever, just do everything to benefit Joe Biden. Because, you know, if you, if you lose him, the war in Ukraine is in jeopardy. All sorts of stuff is in jeopardy. If Trump wins and he picks, man, I would love to see DeSantis. I don't know if you, you know, people probably don't remember, but um, Joe Biden put Kamala Harris in charge of the border. And then she didn't do anything. I mean, the only thing she did was she stayed away from the border for months after that. But, I don't know, I think Trump hates DeSantis. But if Trump were president and DeSantis was VP, and he put DeSantis in charge of the border, it would be crazy. Or, you know, Ramaswamy. Anyways, if he gets a VP, or anyone, if he can, if he can ever get some qualified people to help him, which I... You know, I guess you just got to roll the dice. You got to roll the dice a second time. He didn't do it last time, but maybe he'll do it this time. And you start off by just firing everyone in the deep state who doesn't do what the voters want. I mean, whatever. That means the entire deep state is going to be against Trump. You know, like, do you work in the State Department and you've been there 19 years and at 20 years you get a $130,000 a year pension? Well, you need to do everything you possibly can to prevent Trump from being reelected. So, I mean, all the stops, all the stops are coming out. And if you have to turn the Department of Justice into the most banana republic, you know, corrupt police force in the universe, well, you know, everyone's job is at stake, so you just do it. This week I learned that America controlling oil is how we defeated the Nazis in World War II. And I'm sure different historians have different ideas. But I guess there was two battles that kind of were the crux of the matter. And I wish I remember. It was Stalingrad and somewhere else. And the Germans didn't have enough diesel and gasoline to run their tanks and whatnot. And, you know, you lose. And it was the same situation with Japan and Pearl Harbor. We cut Japan off from oil. And, you know, they had... I don't know how much they had. They had a few weeks worth of oil, and that was it. And so they had to attack Pearl Harbor. They're like, all right, I guess we're going right at America because we only got a few weeks before all our stuff is grounded. And so I think the people in charge of the U.S. government, they learned their lesson in World War II. It's all about oil, and that's why you can kind of find something related to oil in a lot of the wars that we get involved with. And so all this answers a question that I've had about solar panels. Like, why is China building solar panels at a crazy, crazy rate, for, you know, producing tons and tons of electricity? Every year they're building more solar panels in China. Well, recap, America has been working with Australia, Korea, Taiwan, Philippines, weird countries like Tongo and whatnot. Um, to build a naval blockade around China so that they can't get out by the ocean and get oil. And then China has been trying to build a giant 
car and railway system that goes through Pakistan so they can get around our naval blockade. And that's why we're giving weapons to India to try and get them to stop that. But it's kind of like squeezing a balloon and it always wants to bloop out on whatever side it can. And so one of those ways is if China, you know, if the, if the domestic electricity in China is all coming from solar panels, that's something America can't take away from them. If they don't need their oil for electricity, then they can use it all for the war that America is trying to get them to start with Taiwan. But I don't know if you heard about how China is just like a world leader in renewable energy. Um, you know, did you think it was because they're such nice guys? So I'm still trying to come up with a theory of the case for ESG, woke capitalism. And I think left week I was talking about how ESG gives the money people, the investment corporations like Larry Fink at BlackRock and the big banks, um, it gives them more, more power. I mean, they got the money, but they want even more than that. So it gives them money and power. Wonderful. But it's kind of funny because it gives you left-wing power or you know the power to do left-wing things or more precisely it gives you power to do things if you call them left-wing like what's the ultimate power in a corporation uh it's the board of directors they are above the ceo they choose the ceo so that you know the board of directors if you control that you control it all now how do you get control of the board of directors well you put people on the board that do what you want, your buddies or your pawns. And this is the G in ESG, governance. And so, you know, how do you get rid of the, the people on the board that you don't like and put in your pawns? Well, you know, what, one way you could do it is, what if the people you don't like who ain't doing what you're telling them to do, what if they're white men? And what if, ideally, there's never been a black woman on the board of directors of you know, Coke or whatever, ever. Well, you go, George Floyd, something, something. We need a black woman on this board and we got to get rid of someone. Oh, and it just happens to be the person that I don't like. And luckily, this black woman is incompetent. So we can fire, over, fire her over competency reasons anytime we want. Or she can just do what we tell her to do and rake in the dough. So, all right, you got the board of directors ship shape, topped off with people who do what you want. But now there's a bunch of people left over in the C-suite, you know, chief diversity, no, not chief diversity officer, chief, op maybe you don't like the chief operating officer. Well, that's where the S in ESG comes in, social. And that means you need to have a bunch of C-suites who are not white men. And so, you know, you get the board to tell the CEO that if he wants to keep his job, he needs to increase diversity in the C-suite. And hey, why don't you start with the COO? And then, you know, are you gonna put a black woman in here who's incompetent? Uh, this is a critical position. So hey, CEO, why don't you look around your company, find someone who's qualified to be the new COO and is, and is in a position that's not so critical and can be replaced by an unqualified black woman, and then make that swap, a double swap. And there we go. We got our black woman. We got rid of the COO. And most importantly, the new COO knows which side of his bread is buttered. All right, I'm getting out over my skis here. I don't know if that last story was exactly right, but I think you can kind of see what I'm saying.
I guess hopefully you're a truck driver who listens to my podcast because they need to kill time, not because they need information, because I could have just said, you can use diversity to replace the people you don't like with, in quotes, diverse people. And that's power. That's fun. Well, I've been listening to podcasts about ESG this week, and they pretty much only talk about the E, environment. Like, you don't hear much about the S, social, which involves, you know, passing over white men and not hiring white men, and also the thing where you do transgender ad campaigns and put gay kisses into your children's cartoons. And people don't talk about the G, where you fiddle around with the composition of who's in control of the company. People just talk about the E, environment. You know, global warming is a crisis. You can do whatever the hell you want in a crisis, never waste a crisis. And above the money men is the governments. And there's something about European governments making our mutual funds and investment corporations woke and them spreading it out amongst all the companies. Anyways, that part I don't understand and no one ever talks about it. So unfortunately, I can't give you the lowdown on that today. But when all is said and done, ESG is controlled and implemented and everything by rich white men. And so one of the premises that I'm just going to assume as I look for the correct conclusion to explain ESG is that rich white men are not a bunch of do-gooders who just want to help the world even if it hurts their pocketbook. They're normal humans who are seeking money and power. And, you know, hey, money. Start with money. That's good stuff. And so maybe some, most of ESG is a smokescreen. And so like I say, no one ever talks about S social and governance. Um, basically, do you want to get called a racist? No, you don't. So don't even talk about those things. You know, I listen to like business podcasts. They only talk about the environment part. Like the Federalist podcast, which is right wing. They had an hour long discussion of ESG And I think they got to the S and the G in the last maybe 10 minutes. Talked about it for a few minutes and then moved on. I mean, basically, it was 50 minutes of E, 5 minutes of S and G, and then move on. But here's how you can use ESG and climate change to your advantage. Like, say you're an oil company. Or heck, you know, you're Nike and you're building shoes overseas. Any any company that makes anything. What you do not want is for the government to come in and say, hey, you're making climate change worse, you gotta change. And Exxon, for instance, um, they could say, look at our ESG score. You know, we're policing ourselves. We're doing amazing things for the environment. Now, this doesn't apply to Disney, so I'm still working on it. Now, if you're BlackRock, you own all of the companies, you know, in the Fortune 500 or whatever, And maybe, you know, 400 of those companies rely on cheap fossil fuel. And if 100 companies that make children's cartoons have to get woke to make your smokescreen complete, then, you know, so be it. And I guess the thing that companies are the most afraid of is a carbon tax. I mean, I don't know that I support a carbon tax. I probably don't, although I am kind of far left. I don't know. I have to hear what the money's going to be spent on. They probably use it to fund more proxy wars. 
But the carbon tax, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, politicians, hey, go pass all the environmental laws you want, companies say, because they're like, you know what? We own the we own the politicians. We'll just have them pass environmental um, laws that hurt our competitors and somehow leave us unscathed. But the carbon tax one is, you know, like if you're Coke, how many miles a day do your trucks drive around delivering Coke? Oh, you got to pay a carbon tax on that. Pretty much everything. You know, if you're Google, you got these data centers that are using tons of electricity to power the computers. You got to pay a carbon tax on that. I mean, basically, it's a tax on energy. And I don't know, I don't know what companies don't use energy, but it's not too many of them. So a smokescreen to, inv- uh, to get, a- get around government regulation. And I think maybe part of the, you know, the S and the G, basically discriminating against white men, plus pushing gay stuff. Um, you know, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to call anyone who told you you're wrong a racist? So like, you know, like, hey, if you, if you try and do a carbon tax, you're a racist because we're pushing social and governance also. So like I say, I'm still working on it, but what do we got here? Money, power, avoid government regulation, you know, swap out people you don't like for unqualified black women, get right-wing populists kicked off the internet when they oppose transgender children stuff, call your enemies bigots, steal women's underwear, something something profit. And do I feel bad saying black women all the time as my stand-in for unqualified women and people of color? Yeah, I feel a little bad about it. But Gavin Newsom, governor of California, just said that if and when he gets to replace the California senator, he's going to replace her with a black woman. Um, So, you know, I don't feel too bad about it. I guess it's kind of funny. You're a racist if you point out that unqualified black women are being put into positions of power, but you're an ally if you put unqualified black women into positions of power. All right, I looked some stuff up. You should try it sometime. I don't like it. But the Financial Conduct Authority is the thing that's in charge of banks in the United Kingdom. And they are currently codifying ESG and putting themselves in charge of it. I forget the names of all the acronyms of the people who are in charge of banking over in the European Union, but they are also doing that. So basically, in Europe, the governments are doing ESG too. And it seems like a lot of this stuff is happening starting in June 2023, so they're kind of late to the game. I, you know, it still doesn't answer all the questions, but ESG is going to be part of the government here. Well, actually, not here. Everywhere else. I think Biden has already said investment corporations do not have to follow their fiduciary duty if they're doing social justice ESG stuff. I think that might be held up by the courts. Can't remember on that one. Anyways, trying to do it here. I don't think it's quite happened. But June 23, that sounds like the corporations are making the government do it and not the other way around. So, And I don't think that's right, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, something to know. And that brings up the fiduce, which is kind of like the abortion. So investment managers and investment corporations have a fiduciary duty to their clients to make them money. And I believe that fiduciary duties are enforced at the state level, not the federal level. So different states will have different rules. I mean, as I say that, that doesn't sound right, because then California could say, 
you have to you know make sure you guard your clients money unless you want to be racist against white people in which case you can use the money for that too which is basically what the rule was that biden was trying to implement now so stick a pin in that but i think fiduciary probably the fi is the same as the fi and financial just a guess but money managers are the classic example but also lawyers and who knows what a lot of different people can have fiduciary duties which means that you have to take care of your client. You can't rip them off. Or maybe, well, no, you can't rip them. Ripping people off, that's always illegal. What it is, is you have to do what's in the best interest of your client. Like investing your client's money in your son-in-law's company would be good for your son-in-law, but not for your client. So then you'd be breaking your fiduciary duty. And it looks like you cannot go to prison. It's not a it's not a criminal offense if you go against your fiduciary, but you can be taken to civil court. I think, you know, they even have juries in those things sometimes. And then I don't know what happens. They probably just take away your money or more likely give you a slap on the wrist since that, that seems to be white collar crime treatment in America. But here's the funky question. What if being racist against whites lets you pollute the environment and make more money? I don't know, but that kind of sounds like you have a fiduciary duty to be racist against whites. I mean, you have to. It's in your client's interest. And, you know, hiring unqualified black women and lying about it and saying they're qualified, that would all meet your fiduciary duty. Like, if you don't lie about it, you're not going to be able to get away with it. So lying actually becomes part of the fiduciary. I mean, there must be something about not doing illegal things, even though it helps your client. But lying's not illegal, so anyway, I don't know on that, but just a thought. And then, like, Disney putting, you know, a lot of gay stuff into children's programming. Well, well, okay, so, you know, first off, it's not whether or not it's actually good for your client. It's whether or not you believe it's good for your client. Because no one can predict the future. No, you know, no one has all the information. So, you know, do you have a reasonable belief that you're doing the right thing with your client's money? So if you and all your buddies can get some group groupthink going on and believe stuff that's totally false, you know, I mean, that makes that makes ba- things based on those on that information part of your fiduciary. And then Disney is like, you know, we need to hire young people to whatever, make content. We need to hire black actors so that black people will watch the show. We need to hire Asian actors so Asian people will watch the show. You know, and maybe the data says that doesn't actually work out. But if you believe it works out, then you're meeting your fiduciary. But if you convince yourself that all the young people coming out of college today are super woke, and that you have to be super woke as a company to attract talent, then, I mean, right there would be another reason to go woke. And then I guess to steal man my own side, you know, things like the Bud Light boycott are good. You know, basically, Bud Light was like, we have a fiduciary duty to put transgender stuff out there because, whatever, because we think it will help the company. And then, as more and more examples show that that doesn't help the company, in fact, it hurts the company, as soon as they know that, as soon as that is internalized in their brains, if it ever is, then the fiduciary duty says, we must not put transgender ads out. Boy, all right, I think I'm... 73% of the way to a holistic understanding of ESG.
All right, I'm going to read some emails I sent to my woke buddy. Subject, Scandinavian minimum wage. Body, a company cannot pay more money to an employee than the amount that that employee produces. Scandinavian countries have a high level of education and their workers are incredibly productive. So those countries instituted a very high minimum wage and everything was great. Then they let in a bunch of immigrants who could not produce as much money as the Scandinavian minimum wage. The countries were left with two choices, to lower the minimum wage or to let unemployment rise. They chose the one that leads to civil unrest. My, my woke buddy replied, why not a two-tiered minimum wage? All right, another one. Subject, how to tell if the election was stolen. A 0.2% margin in Georgia means two in 1,000. So if one Biden voter switched to Trump, that would decrease Biden one and increase Trump one, thereby flipping the election. So three out of every thousand voters in Arizona and Wisconsin would have flipped the election there too. So the question is, did the FBI and CIA meddling with the internet change the votes of roughly three out of every thousand voters in the swing states? Do you know what you do after you steal an election? You, you accuse the other side of trying to steal the election and start t talking a whole bunch about threats to democracy. There's been some polling asking voters if they would have changed their minds given full information about Hunter Biden, and they say they would have changed their minds. Obviously, no Trump-hating polling outfit or media outlet is covering this, so I guess your brain is safe for another day. Is Joe Biden a fascist? Well, he's just an old man. Um, is his administration fascist? Well, I don't know about that. Let's, uh, let's expand the circle. In this circle, let's put the FBI and the CIA who stole the last election, the military-industrial complex, the bankers and the investment companies like BlackRock, all of whom work to create glo uh, American hegemony across the planet using taxpayer dollars and retirement fund money, plus the higher-up federal employees. I mean, basically, that's just the deep state. The arms manufacturers, the bankers, the State Department, the CIA, um, the administration. That's just the deep state. Well, are they all fascistic? Well, I looked up the definition of fascism, so here we go. Fascism is a far-right, authoritarian, ultra-nationalist political ideology and movement characterized by a dictatorial leader, centralized autocracy, militarism, forci forcible suppression of opposition, belief in a natural social hierarchy, subordination of individual interests for the perceived good of the nation and race, and strong, strong regimentation of society and the economy. Well, whoever controls the definition of fascism, probably the deep state, um, they're no dummies. The first th there's, there's 10 things that you need to be fascist, and number one is far right. And far right today means you don't want a bunch of immigrants illegally entering your country. So Biden and the deep state, they're not fascist because they're not far right. They love illegal immigrants coming in.
So let's go down the line. They're not far-rate, right? Are they authoritarian? I would say probably not. Are they ultra-nationalist? And I think they would say, we're not ultra-nationalist. We love illegals. We're, you know, that white confusing white nationalism with ultra-nationalism. But as far as going around the world, destroying other countries that we don't like, uh, I think we are ultra-nationalist. We're destroying Ukraine right now, just as a, as a little pawn to get at Russia. Do we have a dictatorial leader? Um, they're trying, but it's not working. There's too many checks and balances in America, so no. I mean, same thing with like people were trying to say Trump was a dictator. He might have, he you know, woke up from a dream and wanted to do some dictator stuff occasionally. But anyways, America doesn't allow that. Now, a centralized autocracy. I like saying autocracy. It's not autocracy. Autocracy, if you're cool, like me. I think you can say we got an autocracy going on. I mean, you know, you might say, well, it's a democracy. But the fact that when Donald Trump is elected and the deep state goes in the one direction and then Biden is elected and then the deep state goes in the exact same direction... And in Trump's case, he wanted a different direction and didn't get no change in direction. I think we have an autocracy of some sort. A centralized one. Does militarism fit? I mean, we just ended two 20-year wars or something in Afghanistan and Iraq and then started up a proxy war against Russia and Ukraine, so I think militarism fits. Forcible suppression of opposition. Um... You know, I, you know, this is like, are they throwing people in prison? Well, they are. They're throwing January 6th people in prison. They are, you know, the FBI and CIA are colluding with big tech to steal elections and to get people kicked off the internet. I mean, you know, this isn't your 1939 Germany forcible suppression. But I think it's the, you know, cancel culture. It's the modern internet equivalent of forcible suppression, especially when you add in that you know, some of the J6 people were rioters who should go to prison, just like the tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter people should all be in prison as well. But a lot of those people weren't really, you know, and they used the justice system against them hardcore. Reminds me of how uh, a bunch of the J6ers, they wanted to be sent to Guantanamo. Basically, they wanted to go anywhere except for Washington, D.C. jails because... I guess Washington, D.C. is, you know, it's not a state, so that's not a state jail. It's a federal jail, maybe the only federal jail. And it's full of nothing but black people, plus some J6ers. And, you know, 2021 and on, that's after Soros, George Soros, got his prosecutors in there. So, you know, the, even the mild criminals, they don't, you know, even, even mild criminals don't go to jail. Hardcore criminals barely go to jail. I mean, all you get is, like, the murderers and the rapists, the people who will try and kill you in jail. I mean, it was a good way to soften them up, you know? You, you, throw, you throw a white person into Washington, D.C. jail for a year, they will plead guilty to whatever the hell you want to give them. And to be fair, I'm sure the black people in D.C. jails are not super fond of the situation either. All right, natural belief in a, 
social hierarchy. Well, you know, I think people are like, oh, we oppose white supremacy. Anyway, you know, white supremacy, that's last century's social hierarchy, or actually a couple centuries ago. But anyways, the new one is, are you educated and woke? If you're not, you're a piece of shit. So I think, I think that, yeah, the deep state and Biden, they're, they have the belief in a natural social hierarchy. Uh, after that, subordination of individual interests for the perceived good of the nation and race. You can see a lot of this fascist stuff as they throw in racism. Like, I mean, they don't say it in here. So the first, the first word in here is far right. But they almost could just throw in the word white. They're like, we're not a fascist because we're not white. We're not doing stuff for white people. You know, we, we've found a different group. We're, we're not white against black. We found a different group that we're a part of and then a different group that we want to fuck over. But yes, I think they do say, you know, we all need to come together to fight the enemy, subordination of individual liberties and whatnot. So, yeah, it's not over race, it's over ideology, but I think that one counts. And a strong regimentation of society and the economy. And I think society is regimented now. You know, are you wealthy, elite, educated people in power? Are you one of their preferred groups of people who are their pets, or are you the other people? The evil Trumpers. So I lost count. That's six or seven out of ten things fit the deep state and Biden. Um, unfortunately, the definition of fascism is controlled by who I am calling fascist. So they, they make sure to throw in a few things, and they, put them, they like to put them right at the top. That, you know, it's like, you know, definition of fascism, all these things, unless you say you're not a fascist. And then they're like, I'm not a fascist, boom, there you go, I'm not a fascist. And I control the definition. Actually, let's steal man this. Let me look back at this list and see how many of these apply to Trump. I mean, I don't think any of them apply. A whole bunch of them he's accused of, I mean, like being far right, but I mean, you know, NPR, like, you know, I did a segment on NPR the other day. They call everyone far right. Far right just means if you're on the left and you don't like someone, then that automatically makes them far right at this point. I mean, basically, if Trump had actually been in control of the deep state, then he would also maybe have six or seven out of ten. But he wasn't in control, so he gets zero out of ten. And a lot of them are just roundabout ways of calling someone a racist, which... You know, the media thinks Trump is a racist, so if you, if you believe the media's accusations of racism, false accusations or unproven accusations in my opinion, um, then he would meet maybe three of them. But if you don't believe the media, and you shouldn't, then he would get zero out of ten. So Trump is not a fascist. I mean, it's the classic thing. What do you do if you're a fascist? Well, you got two options. You can stop being a fascist, you can change, or you just call your opposition a fascist. And I think the choice is obvious. Basically, playing with words uh, can make you powerful. It makes me think of critical race theory, where if you're like, they're teaching critical race theory in the schools, people are like, no, they're not. Critical race theory is a you know second year class in law school. And then you go, well, what do you call it when in second grade, 
you have the black kids get on one side of the room, the white kids get on the other side of the room, and you have the white kids apologize to the black kids because of their white privilege. And the left-wing answer to that is, there is no name for that. It's not critical race theory, and there is no other name for that. So, you know, you can, if you want to talk about that, you have to use a paragraph-long explanation of exactly which kids did what on what day and where. You can't just come up with a term for it, like critical race theory. And, you know, on the right, you're like, uh, I think that's called critical race theory, and they're teaching it in schools. And then on the left is, that's not critical race theory. I don't know what, you know, so I don't know what that is, but they're not teaching critical race theory in school. In fact, you are sounding like a conspiracy theorist. And then people on the right are like, uh, Joe Biden is ticking seven out of ten boxes on the fascism test. And people on the left are like, uh, the most important one is far right. So that's Trump. And then you're, and then people on the right are like, uh, yeah, only left-wing media outlets are calling him far right. And they're like, yeah, checkmate. The Academy Awards, or the Oscars, have changed their diversity rules a little bit. So five, ten years ago, there was the hashtag Oscars so white, and they felt whatever. They felt like they needed to make a change, and so they came up with some rules, things like, I don't know, they got like maybe seven different things, and if you get two from the first three and one from the next four, then your picture is eligible to win an Oscar or something. And the rules are like a woman, a person of color, a deaf person. You know, you need one of those in the top four stars or, or you need, you know, so many deaf people behind the camera doing audio work or your director of photography needs to be blind. Well, most of them are about race, but anyways, there's some ones about gender and disability too. And it can be people in front of the camera, people behind the camera can help you meet it. Um, I think like interns or something, if you have a bunch of like black lesbian interns, that'll do it, which I think is what they do. They're like, my movie is set in 1540 Germany and it's all white people, so... Just hire a bunch of interns who are black lesbians. Because I don't need them as actors, and I ain't letting them touch any of the equipment. So I think they started the rules maybe two years ago. And anyways, to be eligible for an Oscar, you had to meet these rules. But this year, the change is, to be eligible for Best Picture, you have to meet these rules. But to be eligible for other Oscars, and just take yourself out of the running for Best Picture, you don't have to re meet the rules. And I think there's a there's an acronym for this. I think it's RAISE. It's like capital R-A-I-S-E, all caps. I don't know, race and inclusion, suck eggs. Obviously, it's not suck eggs. Now, there's some debate. I mean, it sounds too good to be true, so I'm sure it's false. But it may be that Oppenheimer does not meet the rules. I mean, it's set in... 40s America, and there wasn't a lot of diversity on the, of the people um, building the atomic bomb. I'm sure Jews do not count towards diversity. And so it would be amusing if Oppenheimer cannot go up for best picture, if it wins like 10 Oscars in every other category, and just makes a whole laughing stock out of best picture because the obviously best picture was not selected because of their rules.
That would be the go woke, go broke. I mean, like I say, probably not happening. I mean, I believe that Christopher Nolan, the director, he almost made the movie so that he could win Best Director. Although, actually, that's not Best Picture. But anyways, it's almost like he... Uh, there's there's rumors that he made the movie to win Oscars. So I'm sure he would at least go get a bunch of black lesbian interns. Oh, I don't think I mentioned. But anyways, being gay is also qualifying for meeting the rules. It's that classic thing. They could just make it real short and say, no white men. But instead they say, anyone who's... A woman, or and you know, from this type of background or that. T- Anyways, you got these million things. Any people who's these million things, and all they really mean is no white men. Well, unless you're disabled, and then they're like, uh, "How disabled are you?" That's I don't think that counts. You're like, I went to the doctor for depression. I'm disabled. Oh, and I think the movie Parasite won Best Picture last year, which is it's a Korean movie. I think. All the actors are Korean. Everyone who works on the movie uh, is Korean. And I think the Oscar rules, they say marginalized a lot. So anyways, Korean peoples in Korea are marginalized. See, this is where stuff breaks down. And you know what they're saying doesn't actually match up with what they're trying to accomplish. They should just say, no white men. That would let the Koreans in. Billy Porter said that because of the actor's strike against the studios, he didn't have enough work and he had to sell his house. Now, he's an actor. I don't know him by name, but I do know him by face because Amazon did a Cinderella movie probably last year, and he played the fairy godmother. He's a gay black man. And I'm not sure. I don't think he's trans. Like, I think in that movie he wore, like... You know how women will sometimes have pants that are like really colorful and kind of wide and it, you know at first glance it looks like they're wearing a dress but in fact they have a seam down the middle. I think maybe instead of wearing the normal fairy godmother you know ballroom ball gown dress uh, I think he had that kind of thing on. And apparently he's also going through a divorce. His husband of six years and him are having some irreconcilable differences. Such a shame. But I heard about the story and I had some thoughts that I wish I hadn't had, but I was like, oh, the race-swapped gay fairy godmother actor doesn't have enough money to keep their house payments. And I was like, huh. So that's not good. And I had another even worse thought is that it made me think of how like sports stars, like football players will make tens of millions of dollars during their career and then a year later after they retire they'll be broke and i wonder if actors of color have a similar situation let's cover this weekend's box office barbie and oppenheimer are one and two they're doing great still teenage mutant ninja turtles moved from four to three it's doing okay i mean there's a lot of race swapping in it and they announced a tv show and another movie but the box office is not guaranteeing those things. Number four was The Meg about the giant shark. And it's not doing good in America, but it's doing super good in China. It's like a half Chinese movie, so I don't know. It's not a lot of half Chinese movies out there. Kind of interesting. And the only new major studio wide release this week is The Last 
Voyage of the Demeter, which is a Dracula movie. And it made six and a half million. I think it has a $45 million budget. You have to double your budget to even come close to breaking even, so it's screwed. And apparently in the original Dracula book, there's one or two pages where Dracula goes from Romania to, I think, London on a ship, the Demeter. And I think the book is like, when he got on, there was 20 crewmen, and then every day there was one less, and when they got there, they were all dead. So anyways, you just turn those sentences into a movie. But it's just a couple pages in a book, so hey, you can do whatever you want. And what they decided to make the star was a black doctor. And I looked it up. Dracula is set in 1890. So it's just like, what? I mean, black doctors hanging out in Romania in 1890? I mean, there probably is some story about maybe a real-life black doctor in Europe in 1890, and who knows? You know, I mean, that would be pretty interesting, but I don't think this movie's going into that. I guess, I guess there's a few lines where he says, you know, he's the world's greatest doctor, and he's overcome a lot of adversity. And then I think basically it's just don't, nothing else to notice here. But there's a thing I do now whenever I see forced diversity in a movie, is I go to Wikipedia, I go to the production section, and I look up, when did the movie start getting made? When were they hiring people? And it turns out they hired him in the year after George Floyd. And so the cast is all British, but I don't know, it just reminds me of all these African-American movies that are flopping lately and that all got started in, you know, 2020, 2021. Or actually... Some of them are flopping everywhere, and some of them are only flopping overseas. And since it takes movies two years or something to come out, um, it's going to be a while before we see the repercussions of all this stuff. Like, about two years after The Little Mermaid came out and performed poorly overseas, I think we're going to see some, I don't know, tons of Hispanics and Asians. I think Hollywood will be like, we got to do some race swapping. We just can't stop. But this African-American thing ain't working. Give me some Asians. And there's probably a bunch of transgender swap movies coming out, I don't know, about a year from now. Well, I mean, Barbie has one. So I think starting now and for the next year, we're going to see a lot of transgender stuff. Oh, and Amazon has a new movie out this week, Red, White, and Royal Blue, which is about a guy who meets his prince. And it's supposed to be pretty good. So if you like gay stuff, I would... Whatever. It's, there's a lot of bad gay movies out there. Apparently this one's alright. So you might check that out. Or you might not. And I think it's number six or seven now, but Haunted Mansion, that's Disney's uh, diverse movie. Anyways, it, it is continuing to just be an enormous flop. And Sound of Freedom, that whatever, the, the movie that the media calls the right-wing QAnon fever dream, um, it has now officially passed up Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible 7 domestically. But somehow I don't think Hollywood's going to be doing a bunch of right-wing movies that come out two years from now. Or maybe they will. Hollywood loves to make movies about Hollywood, but I don't think they exactly like to criticize Hollywood. Or if they do, they do it in a way that makes them feel good. And Disney had a, I think it was their earnings call, or anyway, something. The CEO of Disney did a talk to the shareholders thing this week, and 
Apparently he sounded very depressed. And I think Disney's making another movie about a ride. I think it's called Big Rocky Mountain Railroad. Whatever it's called. I used to love that ride when I was a kid. And anyways, they have gone and found a female directing duo to make that movie. So some sort of... I don't know. I mean, it's not race swapping because there, there never was a movie to begin with. But anyways, some sort of uh, female-centric... Uh, Disney ride movie is being made now. I bet they're rethinking that as we speak. Here's an old episode I did. It's not too long. I think it's about Black Lives Matter. I think it's pretty good. So, you know, if you're a truck driver, you can keep listening. Twitter handle, at Religion of Woke. Would you like a data-driven analysis of Black Lives Matter and its effects? Or would you rather just think of yourself as a good person, no matter how many lives it costs? So I have previously mentioned that Black Lives Matter is a conspiracy theory that has caused the murder of 2,000 black people. Basically, it ain't true, and the result of it is to do the exact opposite of what they say they're trying to do. So I'm going to go over the data that shows this stuff to be true. Um, this data is coming from the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, which is America's yearly report on crime. And it can be trusted, and I'll go over why later on. And then um, for unarmed civilians being killed by police, that information comes from the Washington Post. They have a database you can look at. And for the number of black people that were murdered because of Black Lives Matter, um, that information is coming It's coming from the New York Times, but they're getting their information, I think, uh, largely from the FBI also, and other sources. So let's look at whether or not Black Lives Matter is a conspiracy theory. Are evil people in positions of power, you know, the police, killing unarmed black people more than you would expect? Now, in a country of 340 million people, some unarmed civilians are going to be killed by the police. It may be because they're actually using their fists and the concrete as a weapon. It may be the cop makes a mistake. Or maybe the cop murdered someone, like George Floyd. And then the cop possibly goes to prison forever. But roughly every year, about 50 unarmed civilians are killed by police. Um, whites make up the, the, large, the lion's share of that. I think there are about like 20 to 25 whites are killed each year. About 15 to 22 blacks are killed each year. Hispanics are like 15 to 20 Hispanics are killed each year. Asians make up a slight amount of people killed each year also. I guess the point of that is that if you don't know that whites are the largest racial category of unarmed civilians killed by police, you should know that, because they are. And so one way the media will try and manipulate and deceive you is they look at the proportion of unarmed civilians who are killed by police and they compare it to their proportion of the general population. But the police do not interact just with any average general population person. What they interact with is criminals, and in specific, violent criminals. So the correct comparison is 
What percentage does each racial category commit of the violent crime in America? And then compare that to what percentage of unarmed civilians are in that same racial category. So for instance, blacks commit 33% of the violent crime in America, and they make up 33% of the unarmed civilians killed by police. Whites make up 46% of the violent criminals and are killed while unarmed by police 42% of the time. Hispanics are 18% of the violent crime, 19% of the people killed by police. Uh, other, like Asians and Native Americans, they're 3% of the violent criminals and 5% of the people killed by police. So blacks are 33, 33. They're killed exactly the amount that you would expect based on their violent crime rate. Whites are 46, 42. They get killed a tiny bit less, but it's basically straight across. Hispanics are 18 and 19. I mean, very, very close. And then other are three and five. So I guess if, if cops are racist against anyone, uh, it would be Asians and Native Americans and Pacific Islanders. But really, I mean, it's just, it's all rounding errors. The exact amount of violent crime that you commit is the amount of being killed by police while unarmed that you should expect. So let's talk about how the media spins these stats, right? This is The stats I just gave you are not the stats you get from the media. So let me tell you what the media does. They say blacks are 33% of unarmed civilians killed by cops, and blacks are only 13% of the United States population. Now those two numbers are correct, and then they're like, See, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't shoot them any more than 13%, I guess is the idea. But, you know, even if, I mean, first off, that ain't right at all. The correct thing is going to be violent crime. But even if, say, violent crime wasn't the right answer, they're ignoring some huge things that, that they, whatever. They're ignoring huge things so they can lie to people and say that America's racist. And the first thing is that black people are on average, 10 years younger than white people. And the people who get shot, you know, they're in like the 15 to 30 age range usually. So if a much bigger, chunkier population is in that young range, then you're going to get shot more. And so they don't ever tell you that thing. They don't ever adjust for that. The other thing that makes it much more likely that you're going to get shot while unarmed is if you're poor. I mean, you know, Poor whites are the ones getting shot unarmed. It ain't, it ain't the rich whites. And it's the same thing for black people. It's the poor ones. And on average, black people are poorer than whites. So, I mean, you know, plus they're younger and they're poorer. So right off the bat, it's not a fair comparison. But the correct comparison is violent crime. Now, I'm not sure why it isn't all crime. That's something that, you know, maybe could be looked into, uh, but for whatever reason, it matches perfectly with violent crime. So, I mean, that's the one. I didn't make it up. That's just what matches perfectly. But for a cop to shoot someone, they have to be in, you know, they have to be in proximity. They have to be near each other. Like if for some reason, you know, defund the police one out and we took all the cops off the city streets and we put them into nursing homes to keep the peace there, well, then all of a sudden it'd be like, oh, all the, all the unarmed civilians being shot by cops 
are old people in nursing homes. And that's because, you know, a cop, you know, say they either they make a mistake or they're being attacked. Either way, they can only shoot the person who's near them. And so the way things currently are is we put cops in violent neighborhoods, you know, more than we put them in safe neighborhoods. And so that's who they're going to kill. They're going to kill the people in the violent neighborhoods. And then therefore, they're going to kill people who commit violent crime. And, you know, like I say, sometimes mistakes are made. In a country of 340 million people, um, you know, you're going to have a George Floyd, you know, once a year, I guess. And then that cop's going to go to prison for the rest of his life and probably die in prison. And so, whatever, that's how things should be. That's also what is to be expected. You just have, you know, you have tens of millions of police interactions every year. Some of them are going to go wrong. Now, I'll just add in a couple more things to the list. I think this list, you could make it so freaking long. But um, blacks are 2.4 times as likely to have schizophrenia. And there's something like two and a half times as likely as whites to be homeless. I mean, you know, once again, things that are likely to get you in a bad situation with a cop. And it ain't the cop's fault. Unless cops are somehow responsible for people getting schizophrenia. So now, how do we know that the Black Lives Matter conspiracy theory is the cause of the extra 5,000 murders that happened in 2020 compared to 2019? For instance, one other possible cause, there's basically two giant things that happened in America in 2020. It was COVID and Black Lives Matter. So how do we know it isn't COVID that did it? Well. The murder increase was June to December. It didn't start before that. And COVID started in March. So March, April, May, COVID did not cause any increase in murders. And then George Floyd was murdered in late May. And from that point forward, the murders shot through the roof in America. The murder of black people. Like you might think it would be the murder of cops or something, but no, it's the murder of black people. And another reason to discount the idea that it, COVID caused it is that other countries did not have these giant murder increases, but they did all have COVID. And for instance, Canada and Mexico, countries closest to the U.S., they didn't see it. And in fact, certain types of crime actually went down because of the lockdowns, like people are home, so their homes are getting robbed less, for instance. So the New York Times article has a nice graph on this showing it month by month. And, uh, you know, they don't put Black Lives Matter protests and riots on the same graph. But if they did, you would just have, you know, a relatively stable, flattish line from January to May. And then you would have a giant, you know, and then the murder line jumps up a ton. And then you would also see protests and riots jump up a ton and continue along a pace for the rest of the year. So no one knows why these protests and riots cause black people to murder each other. I'll throw out some ideas later, but um, this is also not the first time it's happened. The largest, the second largest murder increase ever happened in 1968, which was a, a year that saw serious amounts of unrest and a 13% increase in the murder rate. Like I say, that's the second biggest one. This one was 30%. So this one's huge compared to even that one. 
So I'm going to try and give um, the best argument for someone who wants to say that what I'm saying is not true. And then I'll just throw out some thoughts. So first thing that should be mentioned here is that we don't know exactly how many of the extra 5,000 murders are black people. They haven't the data, the data has the total number of murders, but it's not broken down by race. So there's a chance that every race was murdering each other more. And it wasn't just black people. So that would make things a little more iffy. Or my conclusions more iffy. I've read a number of articles. And I know like in big cities, um, I know in New York... The extra murders are like in minority neighborhoods, like exclusively. But it's a possibility that other parts of America, um, whatever, could come up with different results. Uh, I think I think we will find that this is a Black Lives Matter happened, and it was black people who started murdering each other more. But there's a there's a chance that that's not true. We'll have to wait and see. So COVID is one theory for the increase in murders. Another theory is that the cops caused it. I mean, I think a lot of people, boy, they really, really wish, you know, even if even if it ain't true the cops are murdering black people, unarmed black people, that boy, would it be sweet if they could pin this on them. But I think they cannot, and here's the reason why. So murder went up 35% in big cities. Um... 40% in medium-sized cities, and I think 25% in small cities. So it was across the whole country, uh, you know, virtually every city and virtually every state. So the idea that every police department across the whole nation in every size city did something drastically different, and that's causing that caused the murder increase. Uh, I mean. We don't have a study on that yet, but I think I think that's that ain't true. Like I live near a, a small city and a medium-sized city, and they didn't change nothing. And in fact, the large city, the largest city that's near me is Portland, Oregon, and well, that one I don't know. There, the cops did pull back a little bit, and then the murder rate increased by like somewhere is either eight hundred to or sixteen hundred percent. So. You know, basically, for every previous, for everything before this stuff, the murders went up like ten times. For every previous person murdered, now we got ten of them. So I think that's actually I wasn't even going to bring up Portland, but I'm glad I did because that's it's making me question myself a little bit. Um, like one of the things I know that happened in Portland was basically the people in charge of the police department are very progressive politicians and. Um, they just basically they were against the police department um, enforcing various laws, like the prosecutor stopped prosecuting stuff when the cops would you know the cops would arrest someone, the prosecutor would just let them go, um, and the mayor he's the police chief he disbanded the gang. Well, it used to be called the gang task force or something, but that was considered racist, so they changed it to the gun violence task force. But it was always. Basically, it's the same thing, and it always had a disproportionate, you know, the people that they arrested were gangbangers with guns, which was disproportionate. Portland is like the whitest big city of its size, 
and the gang bang people the gang members with guns were black so anyways they disbanded that because it was disproportionately um arresting black people with guns and so like i say portland had the biggest increase i think by far of any city because they just they didn't have very many murders to, murders to start with they went from like you go basically you go from zero murders to a hundred murders you get a that's a heck of an increase. Whereas Minneapolis, they doubled their murders, but you know maybe I don't know what they were three hundred to six hundred, five hundred to a thousand, something like that. But it's only a doubling, even though it's a lot of murders. But I'm going to say that some of the big cities did some weird stuff, like Minneapolis and Portland, with the de, you know people were talking about defund the police, but they didn't they didn't actually do it in most cities or virtually all cities. But a few of the cities that tried defund the police, I think they got, they really got extra murders. But then once again, you can just throw that at the, at the feet of Black Lives Matter. I mean, the movement, you know, if a, if a politician says that they support Black Lives Matter and they defund the police and that causes a bunch of murders, I think that yes, you can just throw those murders right at the feet of Black Lives Matter. So what do I mean by Black Lives Matter? I mean, there is some sort of semi-official Black Lives Matter organization with a website that, you know, says weird stuff like the nuclear family is racist and showing up on time for work is racist. But I'm not talking about them. The protesters and the rioters are completely unaware of that website. It has nothing to do with them. It's just people who uh, heard the phrase Black Lives Matter and they're like, okay, I'm going to go out and protest because I think the lives of black people are very important. And so, you know, if intentions are all that matter, well, then, uh, you know, boy, my heart was in the right place. Whoops, got thousands of black people murdered. But in my opinion, intentions are not all that matters. So people need to look into stuff. You know, if they're going to go protest, they need to make sure that they're not protesting a thing that, you know, a thing that started in the name, a thing that's all lies and a thing that's about to cause the murder of thousands of the type of people that supposedly you're supporting and for whatever reason I think white people are 10 times as responsible when they do it as opposed to black people so yes you you listener if you support a black lives matter and you're white you got blood on your hands you did something real bad another thing you might say is that well black people commit a disproportionate amount of violent crime so, you know, when cops kill them, uh, proportional to that violent crime, that's because America's racist. And, you know, everything, I, all the data that I know of contradicts that. But let's just say, let's just say that systemic racism is a real thing, and that's what causes black people to commit disproportionate violent crime. Therefore, it's not their fault. Therefore, the cops should not be shooting them. As much as they do, well, I mean, if you really look into, or if you really think about it, that lets the cops off the hook. Now, maybe, you know, America, some part, somehow America has failed its black community, and that probably is true. But to blame cops for crime, that ain't right. Cops do not cause people to commit crime. In fact, there's many studies that show the more cops you have, the less crime you get. So... They do not cause crime. But I don't have stats right offhand to say that American racism 
causes black violent crime, which causes cops to shoot unarmed black people, which then causes protests, which then causes the murders. So if you follow that chain of events all the way back up, you end up at American racism. But I guess if I was arguing with myself and I didn't have no stats to back myself up, that'd be the, that, that would be the thing I'd hang my hat on. And you know, the easy, whatever, the easy part about that for me is, should we help black people? Obviously, any, 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 anyone, any community, I don't care about the race, you know, like I believe in equality. I believe in equality regardless of race, but any community, any neighborhood, any kids in school, anyone who needs help, I think we should help them. You know, if they can't get a, if, you know, if some community, they ain't got, ain't got no jobs. Well, we should, we should look at what the root causes are and try and solve them. I guess that's the difference between me and other people. I agree that we should help black people, but I don't agree that we should falsely accuse, you know, cops or white people or whatever of stuff because I know, I know according to the statistics, that doesn't help black people. People are like, I want to attack the cops and pretend I'm helping black people. So anyways, obviously the dude does not abide that. How about guns? Can guns be... The reason that we had a giant increase in murder. I think you could say that guns are the reason we have lots of murders, but uh, there's nothing that changed about guns that I know of that would cause the increase, right? It didn't cause the increase. It makes it easy to, you know, if you want, if you want to go murder someone, having a gun makes it easy, but the gun doesn't make you want to go murder more people. So I don't think the, whatever, I don't think guns are the cause. See, one way that the media tries to deflect the blame from this away from Black Lives Matter is the one thing, you know, oh, it was COVID, which ain't true. And another thing they say, which, anyways, another thing they say to uh, draw one's attention away from the truth is that, sure, murders are up, the biggest increase that America's ever seen, but they're not as high as they were in the early 90s when murder peaked. And that's true, um, but it doesn't really matter. It's not, you know, my, my argument here is not that we had the most murders ever in 2020, just that we had the biggest increase you ever saw, and it was caused by Black Lives Matter. And there's another thing about that, which is that I think hospitals, ERs, have gotten a lot better over the, you know, whatever, every decade. They're better than the decade before. And so, I was trying to find the stats. Like, do we have way less shootings today, or do we just have less murders because people who get shot live more? And uh, so I don't know the answer, but some of the decrease in murders today is because more people who get shot live because the ERs are better. But either way, it has nothing to do with a giant increase. A giant increase is a giant increase. I was talking to a friend the other day about this. Like, you know, normally we're talking about football or other fun things to talk about. But I brought up this subject matter. And my friend, like, he has a lot of empathy. He is full of empathy. Um, Like me, I'm kind of like Spock from Star Trek. 
but uh, he has a lot of empathy for, you know, black people and their problems. He supports BLM, I think. I mean, he just has empathy for everything, so naturally also black people. And so I was discussing what I discussed here. And, you know, maybe he started off with like, with a little bit of arguing. He's like, well, what about this? You know, what about guns? What about that? And, uh, you know, because I've been researching it a little bit for this podcast, I had the answers right at hand. And so, whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't an argument over the facts anymore at that point. He just kind of, he kind of looked defeated. Not like in an argument type of defeated, but like, you know, kind of depressed. Depressed by the subject matter. He's like, you know, I just want to talk about fun stuff like football and whatnot. Why do you got to bring up this, you know, topic? And I was like, well, I just, I find it interesting. I guess long story short, he doesn't find the topic interesting. He uh, finds it depressing, maybe disturbing, but definitely not interesting. So there you go, dear listener. You can... You can see what kind of person you are when you hear this topic. Well, that's the end of the show. Uh, Since you made it this far, you must be very smart and very attractive. So go buy yourself some ice cream.